time. Time is the difference between a clinical trial that costs tens of millions of dollars and sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. We'll be talking today with Claire Grace about how we recruit in clinical trials and how to make clinical trial recruitment with patients faster. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Recruiting patients in clinical trials next on the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm Vice President of Site and Patient Access. Site and Patient Access. Yeah. So sites are clinical sites that run clinical studies, mm-hmm. or hospital sites or private practice, and then patients are obviously patients in clinical studies. My role is really to support the organisation in the most effective way to work with clinical trial sites mm-hmm. and also effective ways to engage with patients so that patients have awareness of clinical trials and so they also are able to participate effectively in clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Is it hard to get patients in clinical trials? Very hard, yes. <laughs> Why? I mean, I hear that a lot. I, I, I have to admit, every time I meet with somebody who's talking about the work that they've done with clinical groups ever, NECRO, contract research organization ever, they talk about how difficult it is to recruit patients or recruit sites. It's always slower than anticipated, and it's frustrating. Why? It is really difficult. The two key challenges for patients participating in clinical research, the first one is awareness of clinical trials. Most patients don't understand where the medicines come from. They don't understand the process of medicine development. And they have very little awareness of clinical trials themselves. And that's compounded by the fact that many healthcare practitioners and physicians are also not aware of the process. They're obviously aware where those medications come from, but they're not involved in the process. They are not clinical researchers. They are practicing physicians and healthcare practitioners. So when you bring these two pieces together, the opportunity for a patient to hear or learn about a clinical trial is actually very low. There are some efforts around the internet and helping patients directly contact around clinical trials through advertising through the internet. But those are not as extensive as the relationship that people have with their healthcare practitioner or physician. And so most patients want to hear from their physician or their healthcare practitioner about trials. That's a known fact of data that's been collected. But also they feel more confident and comfortable working through a healthcare practitioner to enroll in the study. So the first issue is around awareness. The second issue is just the sheer challenge in terms of time. Most patients have a full-time job, they may have a career, they may have a family they're looking after, children. And to participate in clinical research often has at least weekly or monthly visits to a clinical research site. They can take up to two, three, four hours. And so if you do have a full-time job, you have two children and you have you know, an elderly parent that you're looking after, finding that time in a week to actually spend three to four hours at a clinical research site participating in research is actually really, really challenging. And so that's the second big barrier really to patients participating in research. So if I'm looking for a clinical trial or even expect my physician to bring it up in such a situation... Do I have to be practically in a large city, academic medical center, before anybody even knows about a clinical trial going on? 
the majority of clinical trial activity still exists in those big academic centers. There are a number of private practices that are very, very forward thinking and do conduct a lot of research. And there also are things called dedicated research centers. So these are centers that actually don't participate in the normal clinical care of a patient. But what they do do is they are a professional research site. So they run multiple studies. And those are the sorts of sites that you see doing lots of advertising and things like that. But really, yes, the majority of research is still conducted in those large academic medical centers in the large cities throughout the world. So if I'm hearing about this, there's a bottleneck essentially at the physician level, and that's a local physician, community physician that I have or someone else has as their doctor, and it's not the right physician. They just don't know about it because they aren't the ones actually participating in the clinical trial. So the outreach effort, as I listen to it, should be or is to physicians that have nothing to do with clinical trials normally just to get them to advocate for clinical trials for their patients. Am I understanding this correctly or is this not done? You are, and it's done to a mixed degree in different countries. So in some countries, it's perfectly acceptable for a physician to refer into another physician, and they do do that very happily if there's a clinical trial available. So the practice of creating referral networks and being able to market the study to physicians and make them aware is really important. In some countries, however, whether that's a cultural issue or a financial issue sometimes, not every physician is always comfortable to refer on their patient to another physician. So then you have to take a slightly different approach where it's a mixture of awareness, both for healthcare practitioners and also for patients directly. So directly making patients aware through advertising and particularly, you know, internet searches and things. One of the big areas that we think is really important actually is what you would be surprised about is a lack of awareness within an individual medical center. So if you have two or three people on a study team that are aware of that particular study running, and you think about when they're actually physically in the center and able to connect with their colleagues within that center, what we actually find is one of the major areas of losing patients is actually within the medical facility itself. So for example, if you're running an acute study, maybe in an accident and emergency department or emergent care, and your study coordinator at the centre works from maybe nine till five, there's two thirds of the day where there's nobody present to talk to those patients and tell them about research and what might be available to them in that particular time setting of urgent care. And so those are the sorts of pieces that we find that actually are very fundamental but often not covered effectively at the clinical research site itself. When you're talking about financial barriers that might be there for physicians, it sounds like, if I'm thinking through this, they're worried about losing the patient. They have the patient, and the patient is what is their business. I hear that with, forgive me, oncologists. I hear this with oncologists a fair amount. An example came up with radiopharmaceuticals, where you lose the patient because it's going to the SPECT lab and nuclear medicine, and you're no longer giving them, name your drug that has a high buy and bill rate. That's absolutely correct. And it is a real challenge for us. Most physicians do have that issue in the US, particularly in areas like oncology. I think a lot of physicians though do understand that if there's an exciting new drug that would definitely benefit a patient, particularly in the oncology arena, that they are happy to forward them on to another center. But it is a challenge that we do have to overcome, particularly actually in the US, but also in some other markets as well. In markets like Europe, where we have a lot more socialized medicine and Asia-Pacific, it is less of an issue, but there are still big cultural issues around that too. Cultural issues? So if you take a country like France, for example, it would be seen culturally that if a physician was to refer on to another physician, that would be an admission that they weren't capable of treating that patient 
or we're not the best person to treat that patient. And so in some countries, the referral lines are very weak because of cultural issues as opposed to financial issues. I think you've outlined the problem so that I understand it better. So thank you. What solutions do you see as being ones that we use over and over again? These are the good go-to ways to increase enrollment? And are there some innovative ones that are just new? Sure, there are. So some of the go-to ones that we use is really expanding the sites that we are able to go to, bringing on board more sites, things like the community practices and those sorts of pieces to train them in clinical research and support them. We have different service offerings that can support sites themselves to actually conduct clinical research. And so by using more sites that are not those academic medical centers, by going more regionally based and more into the local community, we're able to tap into a much bigger patient population. So that's one way of where we actually place the sites and how many sites we put onto a study. Another way is actually just creating general awareness within the public. So ensuring that people are aware of studies running, they're aware of what clinical research is, and that when they are thinking about treatment options, they may think about a clinical trial as a care option. So that's another way that we have been, over the last couple of years, really starting to reach out to patients more as a consumer than as an actual patient. I think what you find is that most patients who have a chronic illness or a chronic disease don't always self-identify as a patient. They're just a person with a particular challenge that they have or a particular issue. And sometimes we're very focused on talking to a patient as opposed to a person. A lot of the techniques that we're using now where we reach out to patients directly is a lot more of those sort of consumer techniques and working with our PR teams and and others to support outreach to patients directly and awareness within local communities. I know in some cases where I've had friends, family that have had a condition where the standard of care is not very good. It's just hard to get a diagnosis. You get a diagnosis and treatment is not fantastic. That's when I start to think that I need to be on clinicaltrials.gov and look up trials for them. Is that the go-to way? Is that what you do? (laughs) (laughs) No, that's the traditional way that we've always sort of tried to direct patients to clinicaltrials.gov. And it's a very difficult and complex website to use, in all honesty. (laughs) The information isn't well arranged. It's difficult to navigate and it's difficult to find actually what you want. What we are seeing now is a lot more social communities. So we're seeing a lot, particularly in areas where there is a standard of care, but it's just not very good standard of care. And in the more chronic conditions, we're seeing a lot of social communities popping up where you can really start to seed in information about the condition, talk to patients and really support them in directing them to some better options. There are a number of different options around finding the right study for you or for a relative. Some of those are online options. So they are websites that just do the same as what clinicaltrials.gov do, but in a much better, easier, more consumable way. And then there are also basically just these social communities where they have a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of information, particularly if you look at things like rare disease. The social communities in rare disease are very, very active usually, and they're usually a really great source themselves of what is available to patients in the trial setting. And so working with some of those groups can be very advantageous to make awareness of your study within that particular patient population and in with, within that caregiver setting as well. So there's a number of different ways now that we use simply, in all honesty, because clinicaltrials.gov is not a very user-friendly site for patients to go to. Claire, I know that in the past there have been different trials where something like all of the patients were men. Sometimes they were all white men. And that was how you did the trial because they wanted to keep the diversity as low as possible. 
and have a very, quote unquote, clean trial so they get clean statistics. That's changed. That's changed enormously. There has been recent directives from regulators across the world around the diversity of the patient population that participates in clinical research. It's really important that the new medicines and new drug products that we are marketing are safe and as efficacious in all different types of people. And it's very important that the population that you choose to participate in the study is relevant to the actual patient population that will take the drug. So it's really important that we get people from all different types of backgrounds, different socioeconomic groups, different ages, different sexes, different racial and ethnic groups, because those people are the people that will be taking the drug. And if they're not represented effectively and in the right proportions in the clinical trial, we won't know if there's some underlying challenges that will happen in the real world when those patients are taking the drug. So it's really important that we are managing diversity effectively and that we're planning for it effectively in clinical trials. Well, I can see that helping to enroll clinical trials. If you don't cut off half of your population, that seems smarter. On the other hand, if one third of my patient trial has to be left-handed people from Iceland, I know it's going to be a while to fill that trial. So have you found that net-net, it's helping make trial filling easier or harder? Actually, it's probably harder because it's very easy to open all the taps and just let sites recruit and not look at those sorts of challenges that we have and not look at the balance and the proportion of different types of patients in a study. So making sure that we are being careful around the balance of patients within the study is really important. And actually, generally, it tends to slow things down a little bit. Particularly if we have indications that have a very strong group that is needed, your left-handed Icelandics, for example, then it is very challenging and it will slow things down. But it's important that we make sure that our awareness campaigns and the way that we're structuring our patient visits enables people from all sorts of backgrounds to participate. That's really, really critical. So having visits every Monday morning 10 till 12 is going to really cut down on the types of patients that are able to participate in that study. Oh, it's like jury selection. Indeed. <laughs> it is. Well, Claire Grace, thanks so much for joining me on the Cine Yourself podcast. Very interesting. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at cineoshealth.com. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cineos Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health. Cineos Health, shortening the distance from lab to life. Thank you.